0: Brother Harold asked that we mark song number 227, and we'll certainly be happy to do that and use that a bit later in the time of our service this morning as we come to the close of the lesson. It is, in fact, as mentioned earlier, a very great blessing we each have been given to assemble today in the name of the God of heaven, not for the purpose of lifting our name or our wishes, but rather to exalt and lift high the banner and the greatness of the God of heaven. Worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. Come before Him and offer us prayer of thanksgiving, the words of 1 Chronicles 16, verse 29. This morning as we come to the time of our lesson, it is a sequel to the lesson that was, that was begun last Lord's Day morning. We began at that time a lesson entitled, Watch the Peas of Sin. And some of the thoughts that we discussed on that occasion can be summarized using the thoughts on this slide. We learn that that little phrase, watch your P's and Q's that maybe our parents or someone else pointed to us, reminding us to be careful, to think carefully, to do in fact with great care the things that are before us. We notice that that same statement slogan can be very helpful as we contemplate sin. However, we won't focus much on the Q part. It's all beginning with the letter P. And you'll notice at the bottom of that slide, We learned that sin, in fact, is serious business. We learned that sin is presented. We learned that sin is popular. We learned that sin is promoted. We came to see, in addition, that sin is a very personal matter, that it's penetrating, that it is permitted, and all the while it's something that the Bible sets before us as incredibly powerful. Today, I would invite us to continue a series of lessons looking at sin from that perspective there are some more things that begin with the letter p that can be used to help us appreciate sin i'd like to forewarn each of us perhaps briefly that some of the adjectives used today do not paint a pretty picture but sin you see isn't pretty either it is exceedingly grotesque it is exceedingly sickening and some of those adjectives in fact will come before us today What else besides these also can be said about sin? I would invite us to begin by noting sin is progressive. As we start by considering sin and the nature of its progressiveness, might I remind us that haven't we each observed it in our own lives, or at least in the lives of those about us? An individual perhaps tells a little lie to cover up what he or she was doing, But yet the lie that was told to that person, another lie will now need to be told to another to cover up that one. And it seems as if it snowballs if one isn't careful. It is an entangled web that seemingly increases and appreciates to even greater and higher heights in terms of its evil and iniquity. It's often been noted that as one tells one lie to cover one's tracks, if you please... Then one will need to tell another lie because you've forgotten what the first one was that you told, and so the situation seems to worsen. Sin is a progressive thing, isn't it? Isn't it true that it may be that that very thought is at the heart of a sum of passages that we find within the pages of God's holy Word? For instance, in 1 Corinthians, the fifth chapter, Paul asks a very haunting question Know ye not that a little leaven leaveneth a whole lump? And that same writer, in fact, stated it in a declarative way in Galatians, the fifth chapter, a little leaven leaveneth the whole lump. Recall with me the context in which that first question is found. The church in Corinth was battling some problems. In fact, there was sin in the camp. There was individuals guilty of fornication. And in fact, Paul said, you should have been mournful. You ought to, in fact, cleared this matter up. But he says, don't you know that a little leaven Leaveneth the whole lump. Isn't it true that sometimes when one individual feels as if he or she got away with something, that someone else is then tempted to think the same thing? Well, I can get away with this. I can get away with that. And so sin becomes progressive. It worsens. Others become aware, or at least they think that they too can get away with something and Paul warned the Corinthian brethren that you need to deal with this circumstance. And you need to handle it so that you purge sin out of the camp. A similar context reigns supreme in that Galatian letter, in that fifth chapter at least, doesn't it? There were those turning their attention to the law of Moses, thinking that they could amalgamate that with Christianity. And Paul said, a little leaven leaveneth the whole lump. Ye are fallen from grace, Galatians 5 verse 4. All of that reminds us that we must be careful. Sin has a way of growing on you, doesn't it? It may be that a little poem written by Alexander Pope many years ago highlights the very thought in this means. He was an English poet, lived now well over 250 years ago. But the little rhyme that he put together still reminds us of the clearness and of the features by which this very progressive nature of sin can be at least appreciated. Vice is a monster of so frightful mien as to be hated needs but to be seen. But seen too oft, familiar with its face, we first endure, then pity, then embrace. It seems that Pope highlighted in such a simple way what one first tolerates, what one first simply puts up with, but put up with it too often and it seems to grow to the point you feel sorry for it. You pity those who are of that way and then finally, you openly embrace the very thing that you first considered to be so terrible. Sin is progressive, isn't it? That progressive feature is perhaps finally observed in the way that it desensitizes. And that in many ways was the point of that poem, wasn't it? In 1 Timothy, the fourth chapter, beginning in verse 1, the inspired apostle said, Now the Spirit speaketh expressly that in the latter days some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils. But the worst part comes when Paul continues. He says, Their conscience seared with a hot iron. And that phrase in Greek means that they have become desensitized. They have become past feeling. They no longer look upon it as sinful. Sin has grown on them, you see, and it can grow on us as well if we aren't careful. That takes us to the next point. Sin is pervasive. In addition to being progressive, isn't it so very pervasive? That word simply means spread abroad. It's so common. We see it everywhere around us. We observe it, whether we're in public places, on the television, the computer internet, Sin is, in fact, a very pervasive thing. Is it any wonder that in 1 John 5, verse number 19, that inspired apostle said, The whole world lieth in wickedness. That's a strong statement, isn't it? The whole world lieth in wickedness. If you and I think back to the circumstances surrounding that book of 1 John, we remember that now was 20 centuries ago, roughly. Many would argue that things are worse now than then, and yet if John could say the whole world life and wickedness, what about today? You and I see it all about us, prompted and pushed forward by the working of the devil himself? Pervasive indeed. Notice some of these verses. In Jeremiah 51 verse 5, In the long distant past, the prophet Jeremiah so boldly stated that sin in terms of its pervasive character, might be described like this. The whole land is filled with sin. The whole land. When you and I remember that this was Judah, God's supposed chosen people, and yet the whole land is full of sin. What about America today? What about your family or mine? What about the largest consideration of community and neighborhood? Whole land full of sin. No wonder we need to be mindful and very cautious and careful and not let it creep into our lives and our families so that things can become disastrous for us. Some additional comments about this pervasive nature of sin might be stated like this. In Hosea 4 verses 1 through 6, we have there a monumental statement. God again was chastising the children of Israel. They had begun to do things to live immorally. They had become such that they looked over justice and mercy. They would take advantage of each other. As the prophet described how that came about, he said, "...the whole land has forgotten mercy, judgment, and the things of God, and furthermore, is no longer knowledgeable of God. And because of that, there's now fornication, murder, idolatry." All of these practical sins have come about because you have forgotten God. There's the reason for the pervasive nature of sin, isn't it? When human beings turn their back upon God, ignoring His commandments, there's nothing but bad that can come out of that. We see the pervasive nature seen in so many problems that our society is battling. We know that there have been problems, there always shall be, But think about those that seemingly are gaining ascendancy, those that are gaining such tremendous strength in number. Denominationalism began with a small group of people over 500 years ago. Look at where it has come to be now. Loads of particular churches that wear names and do things in certain ways, but yet we're persuaded that they're not according to this book, and yet multiplied millions think that everything is fine. See how pervasive it is? See how it has come to be so persistent and so described by the nature of its existence? As you can well appreciate, I did choose to list one other. Homosexuality. In your lifetime and in mine, look at how that has changed. There was a time when I well remember in high school, it was disgraceful. It was not mentioned in a public way, in any way positive. It was degraded. It was considered unnormal and unnatural. And now, we have only come just a few decades since then, and now it is promoted publicly. They march for their rights. They have governmental support in many ways. There are even those who wish to legislate its correctness. Look at how far we've come. But we haven't come anywhere positive, have we? As you can well imagine, those kind of things remind us the pervasiveness of sin is so very prevalent, isn't it? In addition to that pervasiveness, look at the pungency of sin. That word pungent, it's a strong word, isn't it? The word pungent means to be distressing to the mind or feelings. And sin is distressing to those of right mind, isn't it? Consider some of the following considerations, if you would. It's to be admitted that there are many in our world who don't think sin is distressing. They think it's fun and pleasurable, and they think that there are many other enticing and attractive things about it. And we certainly would admit, based on Bible teaching, that some of that is true. But may we never forget that sin, at its most basic level, is distressing. In Isaiah 57, verses 20 and 21, That noble and bold prophet of the ancient era said, The wicked are like the troubled sea when it cannot rest, whose waters cast up mire and dirt. There is no peace, saith my God, to the wicked. Notice he said with regard to the wicked, they're like a troubled sea. Picture the following with me. There is a lake. It's a nice day and things are well. You notice the smoothness and the calmness of that lake. It's tranquil, it's serene, it has a degree of organization about it. Things are in their proper perspective, but let a storm roll over it, like often happened on that Sea of Galilee. Peter and the others more than once found themselves in a sudden storm and notice the waves become choppy, it becomes dangerous. It's now distressing. Paul was caught in a shipwreck in Acts 27, he and 275 others. And yet, by the power and prestige and blessing of God, they made it safely to land to the island of Malta. Notice, sin is pungent. It's distressing. Think about the problems that sin brings into your life and mine. Jealousy. How often have we had to battle circumstances when one person is jealous of another or jealous of another group of people? And all of the heartache and all of the disappointment and all of the tragedy in that comes about because of sin. Think about the nature of envy. Think about the nature of murder. Think about the characteristics associated with meanness and ugliness and as often as those things persist. Sin is pungent. It brings distressing character to the mind. It makes things unpleasant. It makes things hard at work sometimes. It makes things difficult at school. All of that's because of sin. The pungency of sin is perhaps highlighted in just a few of these verses. We might go all the way back to the third chapter of Genesis. There, when the first sin entered the world, didn't it bring some pungent character Adam and Eve had partaken of that forbidden fruit. Immediately thereafter, God addressed them in turn and placed punishments upon them and upon the circumstances. And one of those punishments was phrased in ways like this. Thorns and thistles shall it bring forth. By the sweat of thy face shalt thou eat bread, until thou return unto the ground, for out of it wast thou taken. For dust thou art, and unto dust shalt thou return. Genesis 3, verses 18 and 19. Did you notice in the passing, thorns and thistles shall it bring forth. Have you ever pondered and thought deeply about the nature of how things grow? Isn't it amazing that you and I can go outside and weeds will grow fine by themselves. But if you want something productive to grow, like beans or corn or tomatoes or cucumbers, you've got to till it, toil it, fertilize it, continue to work it. Think about the curse that's been placed on this planet because of human sin. That curse is something reminding us of the distressing character of sin and all that it brings. It's no wonder that we look for a new heavens and a new earth, to quote 2 Peter 3 verse 13, a place where there won't be any of this distressing pungency of sin. We look forward to times perhaps described by some of these verses. Isn't it amazing that in Amos 5 verse 4, "...seek the Lord and live." Sin brings death. It brings separation. It brings heartache and misery. May you and I with wisdom seek the Lord and thus live. Perhaps in the final matter of this pungent character of sin, notice these two verses. In Ezra 9 verse 7 as well as Isaiah 53 beginning in verse 5, there was some very pointed statements about what sin caused. In that Ezra passage, sin caused the captivity in Babylon. God's people carried off to Babylonian captivity for 70 years. What caused it? Their sin. Jesus Christ going to the cross, what caused it? Your sin and mine. Sin is pungent. But there is some other things also that might be stated about sin. In addition to it being pungent, sin is also putrid. Indeed, sin is putrid. This is a part of what I mentioned earlier in the lesson. When you and I think about things that are putrid, we think about things that are genuinely sickening. We think about things that genuinely make you sick. Some number of years ago on our land, a cow, was there and we were unaware of it and the carcass began to decay. You can well imagine after a few days when we finally did learn that it was there literally we could not even come anywhere near it. It was my hope to remove it to a distant place and it literally would make you sick. I could not come near it. That's how putrid it was. May I suggest that sin also is putrid look at just a few of these considerations. In Jeremiah 3 verse 25, In the distant past the prophet there said, We lie down in our shame, and our confusion covereth us, for we have sinned against the Lord our God. We and our fathers from our youth even unto this day and have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God. Sin ought to make us sick. And that's a part of the way in which the devil works. He makes it look not so bad. He makes it look at least not nearly as bad as the Bible tells us it is. And so we tolerate it. We go along with it. We simply appreciate that it isn't as bad as others might think. All the while it's putrid. I would invite you to think about the Lord's description in Revelation 3. In Beginning in verse 14 of that chapter, a description is given of the church in Laodicea. This is now the church. It isn't the world, it's the church. But this church, you see, had described or been described as neither hot nor cold. Jesus said, I would you were cold or hot, but because you're neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth. The church in Laodicea made the Lord sick. They were putrid to Him. And because they were lukewarm, they weren't on fire for him, but they weren't cold as ashes either. And because of that, they were such bad influences upon others. You and I realize the putrid nature of sin, perhaps in verses like these. What if we could ask the rich man of Luke 16 if sin is putrid or not? After all, he died... All the blessings He enjoyed in this life were no more. He found Himself in the afterlife, but in a place of torment. If we could literally ask Him to this very day, and might we know He'd still be in that same location. The Lord has not yet come. He'd still be there in torment. What if we could ask Him personally? How would you describe sin? Was it worth it? Or is it putrid? There's not a doubt in any of our minds, I'm sure, He would say, whatever is required of you, avoid it. Eliminate it, have nothing to do with it, because look at what it has caused me. You'll see finally in Mark 9, verses 43 to 48, a description in which Jesus Himself speaking, made comments about the nature of Gehenna, that place that we call hell. Jesus likened it to a place where the worm dieth not, and the fire is not quenched. He described it as a place, you see, of outer darkness, All of those descriptions take on a new meaning when we recollect that to those who first heard the Lord make that statement, that was a place at which they could at least reasonably imagine. Think about the garbage dump just outside Jerusalem. All the carcasses and all the trash and all the garbage that was collected in Jerusalem, it had to be taken somewhere somewhere. They didn't have landfills like you and I do today. The closest they had was this valley just outside Jerusalem and into it they would cast the junk and the garbage and the trash. But in addition to that, they would also cast the carcasses of dead animals. The things associated with sacrifices in the temple, those carcasses that weren't consumed by fire were cast into this place. This valley, you see, had a stench that other writers, which you and I could read today, tell us that when the wind blew from the south, the stench in Jerusalem was terrible. Jesus said, hell is as close as I can describe it like that place. The fires burn constantly to consume the trash and the garbage, and the smell is horrible. The Lord's trying to tell us that sin is putrid, and that putrid character should remind us that no matter how it appears on the surface... It is not worth it. As you can see in light of that, let's look at our next one. Sin is punished. Every one of these descriptions so far has in many ways been pointing to the reality of this one. It is amazing, isn't it, that there are many in our world who almost think it laughable to think that sin is punished. Surely we can get away with it. In fact, you'll notice that there are many times in our world where individuals do seemingly get away with bad things. You and I have noticed court cases where the person that was guilty ultimately was released on a technicality. We've seen instances where a particular judge will bang the gavel and declare innocent, but yet evidence later comes to light that shows the person was guilty. It's quite often the case that the guilty end up going scot-free. May we never forget that with sin, it will be punished. Unless it's forgiven, it will be punished. Notice some of these concepts about the punishment attached and associated with sin. I've highlighted them in ways like these at the top. There are consequences even to our sins in this life. Our fathers have sinned and are not, and we have borne their iniquities. Lamentations 5.7 seven. That simply means that there are times we suffer the consequences of others' sins. Individuals choose to disobey the will of God, they choose to violate that which He has set forth, and others have to suffer because of it. That's a shame, but it's a fact. But you'll notice that when we speak about the punishment that attaches to sin, there's no doubt we can be reminded of some of these statements. Be sure your sin will find you out, Numbers 32, 23. We may be able to hide it from somebody, but it will eventually be known, if not here, then at the day of judgment. For Luke 12, verse 1 tells us, Nothing that's covered shall not be made known. Everything that individuals thought they were concealing, everything they thought they were hiding, unless they have been forgiven of it, it will be made known on that grand and glorious day of judgment. The punishment attached to sin takes us to the guarantee of that fact in the life after this one. We studied just a couple of weeks ago about that rich man in Luke 16. And we noticed the punishment that he endured in the life after this one. I list that as an example, but add to that these two. One of them was the lesson text that Brother Gary read earlier today. For the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. The first part of that verse, in so short and clear language, says the wages, the consequences, the inevitable results of sin is death, separation, hardship, difficulty. And if not made right in this life, that separation from God becomes permanent. We'll have more to say about that in just a moment. For right now, might we at least comment about that text in Luke 12. In verses 47 and 48 of that chapter, we notice that those who have done a mess, some will be beaten with few stripes, others with many stripes. But notice, all are beaten that are worthy of being such. God won't overlook this sin. He won't pretend it doesn't exist. It says it'll be punished. That punishment that attaches to sin takes us, as you can see, to our sixth word, our sixth descriptive of sin in this lesson attached to the seven in the previous. Sin is pernicious. That word simply means to cause harm or to cause ruin. Sin, whatever it touches, it tends to ruin it. It tends to tarnish it and to mar it. It tends to reduce it from the luster that it ought by God to have. That happens in human life. It happens to those physical things that are so tarnished by sin. In Titus 1 verse 16, the inspired writer there, Paul, simply said, "...that they profess to know God, but in works they deny Him, being abominable and disobedient, and to every good work reprobate." That word reprobate is a strong term. It has to do with, in fact, rebellion against God, It has to do with this deadly, pernicious character of sin. Sin, you see, does tend to do the very thing. It causes ruin and it causes harm. Look at again what happened to Adam and Eve. They went from this pristine existence of lovely fellowship with God and with each other to a time when they had to leave the Garden of Eden because of sin. They lost access to the Tree of Life. They lost their lovely relationship they enjoyed with the God of heaven. As He came walking in the garden in the cool of the day, they had to hide. Look at what sin caused harm, ruin, degradation, decay. That's what sin does. When you and I think about it, isn't it so opposite then what the world tries to portray? Live it up for a while. Sin isn't so bad. You can always get forgiveness from it, but that's a dangerous consideration. What if things were to transpire? What if one becomes hardened and thus goes through life and never gets that forgiveness? We've seen all these things that sin causes, and every one of them have been challenging, and quite frankly, the strongest one is perhaps the last one. Sin is potentially permanent meaning that if we do not obtain forgiveness from it, and the Son of God came to make that possible, but if we do not avail ourselves of it, and we have to then live forever with the consequences of its putridness, its pungency, the progressive character of it, the nature of the pernicious characteristic that attaches to it, then that can never be undone after this life. Never. Look at just a few of these verses. In Revelation chapters 20, 21, and 22, the last three chapters in the book of God, we have a picture about the devil and all of those that are his henchmen, if you please, are cast into the lake of fire and brimstone. But you'll notice that in the next chapter, there is a glowing description of this beautiful place where the faithful are. It's a very opposite of this lake of fire and brimstone. It's a place where there's no crying, no pain, no death, no sin. A place in which there's richness and beauty forevermore because the glory of God and the Lamb is all that's there. That kind of description points us to the permanency of this. And which side of this sin description are you and I on today? Have you and I had our sins forgiven and are we living each day in the wonderful light of God's countenance and presence? You'll notice in Acts, the second chapter, verse 38, there were those present on that occasion who had put to death the very Son of God. They were guilty of crucifying Jesus. And Peter said, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sin. It's not to put on a good show. It's not to make things right merely with your conscience. It's to remit sin. And that same message continues to this day. And how powerful is baptism when an individual submits to the will of God and is thus immersed in water for the forgiveness of sin. One final verse would be that text in James chapter 1. And in that particular location, we see that James says, Wherefore, putting aside all filthiness and superfluity of naughtiness, let us receive with meekness the engrafted word which is able to save your soul. Sin is many things. Fourteen words that start with the letter P and we've described them and they're all at the bottom of that slide. The vast majority of them are so hurtful and so negative and so harmful and so ugly. But that's what sin is. Sin is presented. It's personal. It's promoted. It's penetrating. It's popular. It's powerful and it's permitted, all of which we considered last Lord's Day. Today, to that list, we've added... Sin is progressive and it's pervasive. Sin is pungent and it's putrid. It's punished and it's pernicious. And finally, it's potentially permanent. What about the circumstance of your eternal spirit at this moment? Have its sins been cleansed so that you currently are right with your Maker? The plan of salvation has been extended in such a lovely way. You'll appreciate that you must believe with all your heart that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Repent of the sins in your life. Confess the name of Christ as the Savior and be baptized for the remission of sins. If we could be of assistance in that way today, everything is prepared and ready, we would be honored to rejoice on your behalf. If you have become a member of the body of Christ and you appreciated at one time the nature of sin, but over the course of weeks and months and perhaps even years... Sin has grown on you. By association with others, you've come to think of it in ways that are not scripturally right. You've looked at it as not so bad. I hope you've been reminded that it really is worse than what you thought. And if we could pray in a public way for the forgiveness of your sins, upon your repentance and confession, God has promised to forgive. And if we could help you today, won't you come and let that be known and at once while together we stand and while we sing.